This podcast is a co-production of ABC Australia and CBC Podcasts. What's the the texture of the remaining skin like? Uh, so it's uh, like very, 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 very dry old leather. It's it's actually quite brittle now. At the virtual centre of Britain is a town called Warwick, and in it is a lab. This is where they examine the skull. So you've got one side which has no skin, so you can just see the skull, which is where people took half of it off so they could see inside of it, because they didn't have this technology back then. And then you've got the one side which has the skin on. But you can see all the perforations towards the top of the skull. This was no ordinary skull, though. And this is the only specimen which has skin preserved on it. So it's the only specimen which has DNA in the world. I'm going to just remove the lower jaw because it's definitely going to fall. That's not the creepiest thing I've heard today, (laughs) amazingly. Just drop the jaw. So it has very large eye sockets. Even without an eyeball, I still feel like I'm being judged by those giant eyeballs. (laughs) It was here where they realised something was wrong. There was a couple of spots. Um, It was brushed off very quick because we assumed it might have just been some debris in the foam where we set it up for this scan. All of a sudden, we saw some really, really bright spots. Um, and this indicated that there was metal embedded in the skull. And just like that, this stopped being any old skull. And it became something else. It can only have happened um, through being shot. This was a victim. Not just of murder, but of total annihilation. My name is Mark Fennell, and this is Stuff the British Stole. Uh, Hi, uh, my name's Cash. (laughs) I am coming from... Let's try that again. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) My name's Cash. I'm here in rainy Sturchley, Birmingham, which is a city in the West Midlands of England. Okay, so his full name is Cash Sangari. Uh, He forgot his surname, which is forgivable because Cash is coming down from the mother of all highs. So I got married on Saturday. How was it? Um, How was the wedding? (laughs) You you know, it's people like it's going to be the best day of your life. Mm. And like normally, like when people hype things up like that, like the day itself is overwhelming. But I really couldn't believe how much euphoria I felt. I'm getting teary just thinking about it. It's been a really hard 18 months with everything that's been going on. And this weekend was like the first weekend where you could have like a, a big wedding for English standards. Quite a small wedding by Mauritian standards, as it so happens. And Mauritius is sort of at the very heart of this story. So my dad is from Mauritius. He came over in the 80s. Mauritius is a volcanic island off the coast of Africa. Quite far off the east coast of Africa, which means that it's very warm, it's very sunny. It's nice, you should go. That's my that's my thoughts on Mauritius. <laughs> You're like the one-man tourism board. (laughs) Yeah, I really am. And yet, it's also a place that Cash has a pretty complicated relationship with. We very much have lived a very English life in many ways, and we spoke English at home, and my dad didn't Mm. teach us Mauritian Creole, which would be, it's sort of the lingua franca in Mauritius. And so as a child, like, I didn't really have, like, a huge understanding of, like, my cultural background. To be honest with you, talking to Cash is very strange for me, because... 
black hair, ethnically ambiguous brown skin. Look, I'm just going to say it. We kind of look like cousins. We do. I wasn't going to say anything, but we do look like we're related. I'm not sure what mix you are. Turns out, uh, despite growing up on the opposite side of the world, we're both basically made up of the same Anglo-Indian ingredients. We're sort of uh, descended from indentured labourers that came over from India. Thing is, the history of Mauritius, and frankly how cash came to exist at all, it is basically the greatest hits of colonialism, featuring all the big players. So Mauritius was an uninhabited island to start with, and then it was sort of half colonised by the Dutch and the Portuguese, and then the French, and then the English. Winning is a strange verb in this context. The English won it, (laughs) and it became an English colony. When you go there, people say Mauritius is not a melting pot, it's a fruit salad. (laughs) So it's a big mix. It's like everything at once. Cash's complicated relationship with Mauritius is important because... One day, Cash had an emotional reaction to something that he did not, and in fact most people would not, expect. I was in Oxford. We went to the museum where it is. And I thought, what the hell is this? In Oxford, Cash came face to face with death. It looks like extremely dead, like even more dead than a normal dead thing you see in a museum. What he saw was a dodo. The incredibly extinct bird that was wiped off the planet centuries ago. It's the logo of the Natural History Museum here. And in Oxford, there is a replica and, as it happens, the only specimen with dodo DNA in the world. It lives here in the UK. And something about this fact just kind of broke cash. That because there aren't many Mauritians in the UK, when I see something Mauritian, it's a little bit like looking at like a mirror or a distant relation or both. Like that of all the objects in this set of objects in the museum, I bear a special relation to this one. We're both Mauritian. We're both like uncommon in that way. And I thought, what the hell is this? Because when you go to Mauritius, there is a museum with a dodo in it, but it's like a fake dodo. And I was like, why did they have the real dodo? And we have the fake dodo. I was just furious. I wasn't like really, really furious. I don't want to give the wrong impression of who I am as a person. Like I wasn't like screaming in the museum. But imagine that British bulldogs were extinct, right? And the only existing soft tissue specimen of of the British bulldog was in Mauritius. And we only had a fake one. English people would be literally on the boats right now. (laughs) Like if if that turned out to be the case, they'd be invading to to get it back. I'm not suggesting that Mauritius will can, should, or that there's any desire to invade the UK. Um, (laughs) Please don't cause a diplomatic incident. (laughs) Yeah. But it's the principle of the thing, isn't it? Diplomatic incidents aside, how did the last DNA of an obliterated species from a tiny island off the coast of Africa end up here? I'd really like the true story of, like, where it came from and how it died. I'd really, really like to know that. And I would also say if you can like manage to blag, I know there's a pandemic on at the moment, but if you could manage to blag like a work trip to Mauritius, I would highly recommend finding money in the ABC budget to go and chill on a beach. All right, cash. <laughs> Cousin I never knew I had. We'll see what we can do. Wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. Welcome to Cash's Paradise. Welcome to Mauritius. 
Oh, this is a fantastic, this is a piece of heaven. <laughs> Amazing. When it comes to animals here in Mauritius. So we are literally here, this is our booking office. Mm -hmm. This is where we uh, take uh, clients, their bookings. Few people know this island better than this man. So I am Vikash Tataya. I'm the conservation director of the Mauritian Wildlife Foundation. And uh, we are uh, the leading conservation NGO on Mauritius. Wonderful. Did you grow up on Mauritius? Yes, I grew up on Mauritius uh, and it's beautiful. Vikash's job is to protect all of the wildlife on this island. But the legacy of one bird looms very large. Now, you go anywhere in the world and you, and you talk to people and you say, I come from Mauritius, and they very probably don't <laughs> have a clue where Mauritius is. But you say, you know, do you know the dodo? And they say, oh, the dodo, yes, of course, yes, we've known this fat, plump bird. Uh, oh, is that from your island? So people probably know more about the dodo than uh, talking about the island of Mauritius. In Vikash's sunlit office, there is a 400-year-old image. Yes, that's it. The, uh, the woodcut was done in 1601. It was the, the first Dutch settlement on Mauritius. And it has a dodo huh. in that picture. So that is probably the first depiction of the dodo on Mauritius. That would be the first depiction, wow. One of the first depictions, because dodos also turned up in ship's logs. I think the, the fact that it's so big, it always takes me by surprise. Yes, around uh, 15 to 20 kilos, nearly a, a meter in height. It would have been one of the largest birds today. I mean, if this bird was still alive, we would have been farming it probably. Oh, and Cash back in the UK warned me about just how much the dodo permeates Mauritius. It's on the coat of arms. It's everywhere. We have matches, which are dodo matches. We have restaurants, which are called dodo <laughs> restaurants. So, so the dodo is actually popular mm. on Mauritius. It's like kangaroos for us. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Can I ask you a question? How exactly did the dodo die out? Um, very simply put, on ships you have rats. And on ships, to keep the rats down, you would have cats to put down the rats. So when you call off a place such as Mauritius, rats ex escape. And when the rats escape, they breed like rats very quickly. And they will hunt out uh, voraciously. The dodo was a very naive bird. We had no predators on Mauritius. So those birds were nesting on the ground, were not used to flying away from a, a man. Talking about men, the men also hunted out a lot of the animals for food. Uh, the dodo was called Wolf Vogel, which means a disgusting bird. Jesus. You know, when you combine habitat destruction, when you combine predation, when you combine hunting, on a species such as the dodo, which laid as far as we know, just a single egg per year. This is a recipe for a disaster, for an extinction very rapidly. And that is precisely what happened. By the time of the human settlement of Mauritius and the extinction, there, there would have been no more than around 70 years uh, between, between those times. Okay, so we have a 70-year window between when humanity settles on Mauritius and when we basically wipe the dodo off the face of the planet. But you got the British, you got the French, you got the Dutch. Who 
actually killed the dodo. So the demise of the dodo happened during the Dutch era of Mauritius. By the time the French colonized Mauritius in 1721, there is absolutely no evidence whatsoever that the dodo was still alive. There was even disbelief that the dodo had ever existed. Right. And people just thought, you know, that's a load of fantasy. <laughs> what would really bring, make the dodo popular would be Alice in Wonderland. That's what's actually added significantly to the fame of the dodo. But if the dodo is virtually wiped from memory years before the British take control of this island, doesn't that just make it even weirder that Cash's dodo ends up in Oxford? Right? Okay. So what we know of animals that actually made it alive outside Mauritius, there's probably as less than a dozen dodos that turned up worldwide. If you look over shipping records at the time, there are fleeting references to dodos popping up in random places like Holland, Hungary, Java, Indonesia, Japan, to Nagasaki, and at least one in England to a, a market in London, probably Leadenhall Market, where it was exhibited as a curiosity. And there's somebody called Lestrange. Yes, Amon Lestrange was his name, and he was a 33-year-old theologian who, luckily for us, he liked to write things down. And so in 1638, he writes that he was wandering through the back streets of London and he sees a sign hanging on a shop. The words read... Strange fowl. And for a small fee... You can go into this market and they are feeding the dodo with pebbles and you pay a penny or whatever and to see the, this curiosity of this fat bird. Or as Lestrange himself put it... Bigger than the largest turkey cock, but stouter and thicker and of a more erect shape. The Lestrange account, in addition to being extremely erotic. It's also one of the only pieces of written evidence that a dodo was alive in the UK, somehow brought here from Mauritius. So is this Cash's Oxford dodo? Well, the next clue doesn't happen for another 18 years when we get this piece of paper. So it reads, Doda, which I think is a typo, uh, from the island of Mauritius, it is not able to fly being so big. So that... That is an entry in a catalogue of dead things, weirdly by a gardener, not just any gardener, the gardener to King Charles, a man who's very important in this story, who goes by the name of John Tradescant. So there was Father John Tradescant and the younger John Tradescant uh, who were collecting a lot of those uh, curiosities, natural curiosities, and the dodo that was on show in London might, is most probably the dodo that they acquired, the John Tradescan family acquired. Now, this is quite something, because the Tradescans were not just weird gardeners with a predilection for dead things. I mean, they were, but they also set up something that had never been done before, at least not in the UK. You see, they were the creators of the modern museum. So if you go to the corner of Tradescant Road and Walberswick Street off South Lambeth Road in London, you will see a very unremarkable row of terraces, sort of brown brick, white trimmings, 
nothing that would give away that this was once home to effectively the very first open to the public museum in the world. It's called the Museum Tradescantium. And look, uh, going back over history, like there's no shortage of aristocracy, super rich people with weird private collections of crazy stuff. But this was something different. So John Tradescant the Elder was a gardener, done good, uneducated. And he broke this mould of exclusivity. Like if you could pay sixpence, you could step into what he very dramatically called the Ark. So that means that one of the last living dodos in the world very likely ended up in the world's first museum. So the specimen of Oxford is composed by one leg and one head, and that's it. It's a mix of one of the most important dodo specimens in the world, and also a very crap one. Say hello to Delphine, the most wonderfully blunt paleontologist in Bristol. Yeah. Um, so I am Delphine Angst. I am a paleontologist, and I am uh, working more specifically on giant terrestrial birds for the last 15 years. And much of those years was working out what life was actually like for a dodo, including this mysterious specimen. Uh, to my knowledge, we don't have documents proving that the specific dodo of Oxford is the one who have been shipped in, alive in the UK. Mm. So it could be, it's likely, because there is not so many dodos who have been shipped, but we, we are not 100% sure. What is definitely true is that Tradescan's collection ended up passing through some other hands and was ultimately gifted to, one, Oxford University. That is how it ended up with the title of the Oxford Dodo. Though, weirdly, people didn't realise how important it actually was. When I say crap, it's, it's, it looks like that, even if it's amazingly well-preserved. So when you see a dodo in a museum, it's bones, very clean, very polished, everything. The Oxford Dodo is not like that at all because there is still the skin and part of the feathers. But it's not a beautiful preserved skin because it's very old and haven't been preserved as well as what we know how to do it now. So the skin is dry, the muscles are there but it's completely dry. It looks like beef jerky in the shape of a bird. It's not great. But actually this specimen is really important because it's the only one in the world who still has the skin, the only one in the world who still have some feathers. And this specimen is the only one in the world having that. It's one of the weird quirks of this particular dodo that it is so incredibly useful because it was so badly preserved. It's super important for plenty of reasons. So first of all, you could do DNA, for example, um, which is possible with the bones as well. But the problem is the majority of the dodo bones we have now are from swamps. And then the preservation of the DNA is basically terrible. But the other thing we could do is, especially nowadays with um, modern technologies and CT scanning, these kind of things, is we could study the structure of the bones in the skull and the mandible, for example. And it was precisely this activity that revealed arguably the dodo's biggest mystery. These dodo have been shot. Actually has been shot in the head. And it was shot in the back of the head? This dodo was murdered.
And in this room, we've got two of our CT scanners. So we have our high speed one and we've got our high resolution one. Welcome to CSI Dodo, also known as Warwick. Uh, Warwick is pretty much in the centre of England, so it's the geographic centre. Cool. Where's the best pub? Oh, best pub. Uh, the drawing board in Leamington Spa. I mean, never hurts to ask, right? Anyways, this is the room where we started. It's quite white. <laughs> it's a white room. <laughs> it's, it's not that big. It's relatively tidy. <laughs> a couple of computers for <laughs> visualisation. And then there's two big scanners which take over the majority of the room. Imagine something that looks like a giant high-tech wardrobe. There's a series of keys you need to open and inside a very Star Trek-looking Lazy Susan. And we mount the object in the centre of this rotating table here. It was on that rotating table that a team, including this fine gentleman with sharp red hair, a grey sweater and all the good pub recommendations, this is where they placed a centuries-old dodo head. Um, So I'm Dr Jay Warnett, and I'm an assistant professor at the University of Warwick. And the main area of research I work in is X-ray computer tomography, which is looking inside of objects without cutting them open, is the short version. And in this instance, when they did that to the Oxford Dodo, they noticed something. When you um, turn on X-ray, same as if you were getting an X-ray on your leg in a hospital and it say you've broken your leg, You get an image quickly on screen and see, okay, well, that leg's broken. Um, In this particular case, there was was a couple of really dark spots. It was brushed off very quick because we assumed it might have just been some debris in the foam where we set it up for the scan. But these spots came up in a weirdly specific shape. But all of a sudden, just catching your eye is literally just this really small star. And then you start moving slow and you notice tens of stars embedded within the skull quite deeply. As the team looked closer and closer, suddenly they realised that there was metal embedded in the skull. And what were your first thoughts about what that meant? Uh, Well, confusion was was first of all, and then we started uh, reading about it a little bit. Then the severity of how deep some of these pellets were embedded, it could only have happened um, through being shot. Those pellet sizes, it seems, were consistent with a gun. So then we just ended up in textbooks about different guns which were manufactured, the sort of pellets, and this entire black hole of uh, artillery. So at what point did you realise you had a 17th century murder mystery on your hands? (laughs) Well, yeah, at that point we we didn't really know where, where to go because there was lots of theories of where this specimen had come from. And there was kind of a generally accepted theory that it came from this, uh, there was this dodo specimen in London where people would go pay to go see the dodo to feed it. Um, and the first thing which occurs to you, this, this money bringer, but also someone's pet, uh, you wouldn't have shot your pet or money maker. So um, the whole idea of where this dodo came from, the provenance story is now all up in the air. The first thing was, how is that possible that these birds have been shot? And I read it very carefully and I was like, it's very strange. The only reason I could think about is if the animal was very ill, for example, and then they had to kill the, kill the bird rather than to let it suffer for a long time. But because we don't have the rest of the body, it's impossible to tell. 
otherwise could have been an animal shot somewhere else, maybe in Mauritius, and bring back in Europe after his death. So it turns out quite a few people have proffered up this idea, but I just want you to visualise the continent of Africa here. Mauritius is off the east coast of Africa. You've got to sail south underneath the whole continent. Then you've got to go all the way up the west coast, past Spain. That trip is like months. How do you preserve a dead dodo in the mid-17th century to make it all the way back to Europe without having rotted? So there's even more questions there about how they would have gone about preserving it. So that would lead you to believe it was shot in the UK or at the very least in Europe? You, you would assume so. And um, we think it would have rotted by the time it made it back from Mauritius otherwise. But why? And who shot it? I have no idea. Jay and the Warwick team entertained all kinds of ideas. Maybe something happened to the dodo at that marketplace. Such as a visitor running along with some kind of matchlock shotgun, then uh, you, you would assume there would be definitely some kind of recording of that. So in my mind, I'm just like doing a list of enemies that the dodo may have had. and <laughs> <laughs> Who's upset previously. <laughs> now, this is the, next, the next question being raised is, let's try to retrace the source of the bullet of the lead, and we might actually be able to trace who may have shot the dodo. Is there a way of further examining those metal fragments in the skull to hopefully ascertain where the bullet would have come from or what kind of gun? Is there any way of doing that level of analysis of the metal inside it? Interesting. Yeah, the thought has occurred to us as well. So we, what we wonder if we can do is with a sample of the lead to work out which ore field it came from. So depending on what ore field it comes from, it has a different chemical signature. Um, so that may then help identify where it was shot. And then that would help say whether that might have happened in England or whether it might have happened further afield, maybe back in Mauritius, which would help confirm one of our theories one way or the other. Right. Uh Who's in favour of going to Oxford and picking up the skull and bringing it back and doing that? <laughs> I, I think also the worry there is that the, the pellets are quite deeply embedded. So extracting enough for a sample could actually damage uh, the sample which we have. So here is a moral quandary. We could potentially prove where the pellets come from, who actually killed this dodo, and maybe even how it ended up in the UK. But to do so would possibly destroy the sample. If you want to start doing destructive things like chemicals analysis or DNA, that's tricky. In other words, do we want to risk destroying an object, a creature that is already the most bitter reminder of human destruction? The dodo disappeared because of human and there is no question there. We did it. This was the first time that a species went extinct and men realized that extinction is forever. Because prior to that, people thought that when, a, when a, an animal or a plant is extinct, they thought, well, you'll find it in the, on the next island or in the next forest or in the next continent. But with the dodo, they realized it's gone and it's gone forever. Britain has inherited the dodo. And on balance, it would seem very likely that a British person killed this particular dodo. British culture has forever been changed by it too. When this dodo went on display, 
in the Oxford Museum, it was visited by a 28-year-old maths lecturer by the name of Charles Dodgson, who would bring his friend's kids on constant visits to the collection. This dodo would inspire Dodgson to write a character of a dodo in a children's book. His pen name was Lewis Carroll, and among the kids was a girl named Alice. What would really make the dodo popular would be Alice in Wonderland. Uh, with a dodo even on a cover, that's starting to make the dodo very famous. But I can't see any evidence that this dodo was stolen by the British, which leaves Kash Sangadi, Mauritian British man, at a crossroads. How does it feel to have an animal that is a byword for death as the symbol of at least half of your identity, for lack of a better term? Guilt's not the emotion. Shame, maybe shame is the emotion, that that's what my country is associated with, the extinction of all, you know, of biodiversity on Earth, that, that that's the cross that we have to bear. It's almost worse. Of all the species that have been made extinct, of all the objects in this set of objects in the museum, the dodo is an awkward inheritance for Mauritians. This project... This series, I've heard of murders and thefts and heists, but somehow when Cash talks about the dodo, you can't help but imagine being one, sitting on a beach, seeing humans land and just being totally unaware that your time is up. The moment they step foot, the clock is ticking on your own extinction. They didn't have any fear of humans. Uh, In reports when these colonists or sailors write about it, they say, oh, you could just shoot them and the other ones don't even fly away. So I feel really sad. Do you know what I mean? That's depressing, isn't it? When I see it. Um, so those, that's, how I feel, that's how I felt and that's how I felt when I saw it. If you live in a land that was colonised, by anyone really, it doesn't have to be the British, the impacts can be so ubiquitous that it almost seems invisible until you realise what's missing. It's tempting to look at anything that happened in the past and think that there was like a master plan, that all of the effects were predicted. The extinction of the dodo wasn't part of the plan. The people that ex- like made the dodo extinct had no idea what they were doing. It's so easy to forget that the Earth itself has paid a price for our expansion over the seas. Let's imagine that, uh, that all humans disappeared from Earth today. The effects of colonialism would still be felt by the environment indefinitely. Colonialism and history in general just leaves you with these things, doesn't it, to make sense of. Oh, this is a fantastic, this is a piece of heaven. It just landed on Ile aux Aigrettes, which is uh, an island of 26 hectares. It is a coral island. This was one of the first islands which the Dutch uh, landed on when they landed on Mauritius, later used by the French, later used by the British. Even during the Second World War, the British used this. They had a garrison of soldiers here. Wave after wave of colonists have changed this land. But Vikash Tataya wants to show me something. And here we have been removing a lot of the invasive plants, uh, invasive weeds. We've got rid of uh, 
uh, cats and rats from the island. Yep, the same rats and cats that we humans brought here en masse 400 years ago. This is what we are doing. But there's something more. Through the pathway, Vikash points out a large dome rising from the sand. And I don't know if you can see something. Oh, wow. If you didn't know what you were looking at, you would miss it. So that's an Aldabra tortoise. Uh, is about a metre 20, a metre 30, probably around 90 to 100 years old. This tortoise, she slowly regards the humans around her and she turns away, fearless, as though these humans, unlike the ones past, are no threat. I really hope she's right. Vikash, I was thinking about this when we were talking earlier. The dodo is a cautionary tale. It's a cautionary tale for us and the impact that we can have. Do you think people have learnt the lesson? I sadly would say most people have not. When you say the destruction was done 400 years ago, you can probably forgive the people at the time because of lack of knowledge, because they had to survive, whilst we can forgive the past generations, future generations will not forgive us for what we are doing to nature and uh, the actions that we are not taking. So sorry, we have not learned the lessons. It's a generation's work and, uh, and it's, the thing is that we have to do it now. We can't say we'll, uh, somebody else will do it in 30 years time. Really, conservation is not rocket science, but it, it needs dedication. Stuff the British Stole is produced by Zoe Ferguson. It was made with the help of Leah Simone Bowen at CBC Podcasts. Mixing by Hamish Camilleri. The executive producer is Amrutha Slee and the head of society and culture for ABC RN is Julie Browning. Special thanks to Dan Hudson, Melvin Rickaby, Tom Bonnet, plus Alexandre and Mimi Pigeot. This is a production of ABC RN in partnership with CBC Podcasts. And it was created, written and edited by me and Mark Fennell. Remember, if you've ever seen something in a museum and you want to know where it came from, email us, stolen at your.abc.net.au. And with any luck, we'll see you next year. We're planning something cool. We'll see you then. Goodbye.